The first reading is John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The second reading is from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers, are also, they also accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Why does it sometimes take so long for the seemingly obvious to sink in? Why, for example, has it taken 14 years for ITV to decide that the Jeremy, Jeremy Kyle show is not a good idea? I suspect in generations to come, clips will be shown of the Jeremy Kyle show and people will be flabbergasted that this was the most highly rated daytime television programme of our era and they may comment on what people were clearly like in our era. Tragically, it has taken the suicide of one of its participants to enable people to come to this conclusion. With all of the scientific evidence that is mounting up, why is it so difficult for us to recognise that we are facing an environmental crisis and that we need to take the urgent action that we do? It's as if we have a kind of inbuilt moral inertia that needs some kind of powerful stimulus to shake us out of our complacency 
and to enable us to make the kind of changes that we need to make in life. In this regard, I'm reminded of those words of the priest, Father Martin McGill, at Lyra McKee's funeral service in Northern Ireland, when he got a round of applause from the congregation in a funeral, when he said, why in God's name does it take the murder of a 29-year-old woman to bring the politicians together? Sometimes it's a tragedy that shakes us out of our complacency, but not always. Let's go back to that reading we just heard from Acts. It seems unthinkable now, looking back, that there could ever have been a time when Christians believed anything other than that the good news of Jesus is for everybody. Surely Jesus had commissioned his followers with the good news for all, go into all the nations. And yet the very first Christians believed that the message they had to share was a message solely for their fellow Jews. And that's how the Christian church began, apparently with no one questioning this assumption. And why should they, they would have said. The Jewish people had been scattered to the ends of the earth and were right now residing in all the nations of the earth, and so they could go to the ends of the earth. And for all the radical changes that Jesus had made in their lives... It wasn't immediately apparent to the first apostles and followers of Jesus that because of Jesus, the ethnic, cultural, and religious divide between Jew and Gentile had to be broken down. They continued to live and think in the parameters and ways of thinking in which they had grown up. And for Peter and the rest of the church, it took a forcible jolt to get him to think differently. And it was this story that made him think differently. We just read of Peter's account of his life-changing experience as he reports back to the apostles and the wider church in Jerusalem. And what is clear is that Peter doesn't come to this new understanding of the implications of the gospel because he's been mulling things over in his mind and has come to a rational conclusion he doesn't think this all through kind of doctrinally with his head. It's all very intuitive and experiential because that's the only way in which his mind can be changed. It takes the coincidence of three remarkable events to shift his attitude. Firstly, Peter has a dream that he can't make sense of as a good Jew. A large sheet of animals coming down from heaven, normally forbidden to eat, is dropped down and the command from God, or apparently from God, says, get up, Peter, and eat and kill. Staying within the bounds of the purity laws was ingrained into Peter as a faithful Jew. Why would God himself question these laws? But then comes this knock at the door with an invitation to go to Caesarea. Because a Gentile, Cornelius himself, had had a dream telling him to send for Peter. Peter sensed that this might be the Spirit of God. And then when he got there and started to speak, Cornelius and his household had one of those dramatic experiences of the presence of the Holy Spirit, not unlike Peter and his fellow disciples had already shared before. And those things stacking up on one another 
left Peter with the conclusion that God must be speaking and calling and sharing his love with Gentiles as well as Jews. Now we have to recognise that for Peter this was the beginning of a journey and not the end of a journey. But at least the first step had been broken down in breaking down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. But looking back, we wonder why it was so difficult to come to this conclusion. Why wasn't it immediately obvious? The problem, of course, is that these kinds of barriers and boundaries are so firmly entrenched into our lives and psyches that they are not easily broken down. And most of the time, we don't actually recognize that they're there. The history of the Christian faith has been something of a slow burn when it comes to recognizing the full implication of all that Jesus means for breaking down the barriers between people. The Jewish-Gentile boundary was at least recognized at an early stage, but throughout the church it has continued to rear its ugly head in a number of ways, not least in the anti-Semitism that has so infected cultures that have been dominated by Christianity. But other barriers, it has to be said, took rather longer to be recognized and addressed. We began the service with the words from the Apostle Paul. Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. The barrier between Jew and Greek began to be addressed in the first century. The slave-free barrier had to wait until the 18th century until the idea of slavery began to be challenged as an immoral concept. And neither male nor female takes us as far as the 20th century, and even then the church lagged behind secular society in promoting the equality of women. So why do these barriers and boundaries between people exist and persist despite all that we see God doing in Jesus? Why isn't it just self-evident to us that in the Jesus who calls us to love one another as I have loved you, that it ought to be self-evident that this is all about people meeting people. And that's all there is to it. And I think there are two clues in this story that suggest to us why Peter might have been trapped in a distorted worldview that he couldn't break out of, and why we too find ourselves trapped in distorted worldviews. Firstly, his worldview was dominated by the language of purity. That was how he and all his fellow Jews had been brought up, in a world that was clearly divided between the impure and the pure, the clean and the unclean. This was so basic to their worldview that they enacted it every time they ate a meal by dividing foodstuffs into clean and unclean. Now, I have to say that in itself, this practice doesn't have to be unhealthy. I can see the virtue in a discipline of life that reminds us that in everything that we do, even the mundane and repetitive things like eating food, we are making choices that are about whether we want to live in harmony with God or out of harmony with God. That's not a bad discipline of life. 
But where it becomes problematic is when that division of the world into clean and unclean moves over into dividing people into clean and unclean. So you're, as you avoid contact with unclean food, lest the unclean food in some way contaminates you or pollutes you, so you also avoid contact with unclean people, lest they contaminate you. And isn't that the challenge that Jesus presents in his life? Because he seemed to make a beeline for the apparently unclean and positively welcomed them into his company. And so when the voice from heaven comes to Peter in his dream, what God has made clean, you must not call profane or unclean. It is heard by Peter, first of all, as a comment about food, but in the context of the story, it becomes much more powerfully a comment about people. Now, I think alarm bells should always be ringing when people start to use the language of purity and cleanliness in our moral discourse, and in particular to sustain social divisions between people. We see it very clearly in far-right nationalisms that long to identify some kind of pure line of descent to national identity. It's always there lurking in the background of any kind of racism. But in a very different way, it seems to me that much of the difficulty that we have within the church and more broadly in human society over justice issues when it comes to our thinking about human sexuality is that our language about sexual relationships has continued to be dominated by ideas of what is clean and unclean. And that's one of the reasons that has prevented the church from campaigning on justice matters when it comes to human sexuality. In our very secular age, you would say that people aren't much bothered about ideas of purity and impurity, clean and unclean. And yet in very subtle ways, it is embodied and embedded in our way of thinking about sexual relationships. If I use the words dirty, smutty, and sordid, what do you think about? Now, some of you might be thinking about the dust behind your bed or the grime under your cooker. But actually, those words often carry a lot more baggage than that. And that's decisive in the way in which we think about sexuality. You see, actually our decisions about what is appropriate and inappropriate in human sexual relationships has often been determined by set ideas about what we think as pure and impure, clean and unclean. And then that's gone on to certain people. And this is the place where this type of language is still embedded in our thinking about the world. And once these ideas are embedded, it's very difficult to break out of that way of thinking. And largely because it's become so second nature that we don't realize that that's what we're doing. 
And when we start thinking in terms of clean and unclean, pure and impure, we get down some very odd avenues and unhelpful avenues. And it stops us asking the very basic question about human beings that we ought to be talking about. What is it that makes for fulfillment and wholeness in human life? What makes for people being true to themselves and being loving towards others? We should move away from language about purity and impurity to language about what it means to love one another. For Peter to break down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, we cried for him a breaking down of his internal barrier of making moral decisions based upon a scheme of clean and unclean. But the second issue that we see having to be challenged in this story is the issue of privilege. Now clearly in this story, in the telling of this story, the issue of purity is center stage. But where is the issue of privilege? And that's actually the problem. It's hidden as privilege so often is. It's hidden and unacknowledged. I think we only see privileged evidenced in one word in the telling of this story. But it's a word that gives so much away. It's in the very final sentence, the conclusion of the gathered community to Peter's story. Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. And it's that little word, even, that is the giveaway here. God has given even to the Gentiles repentance to eternal life. As if such an idea before this were unthinkable. And that's because these first Christians had been brought up with a story of privilege. They weren't socially privileged. They grew up under an occupying force, and most of them were towards the bottom of the pile in the social pyramid. And yet the story that they had been told from childhood was a story of being God's chosen people living in the promised land with the expectation that God at some point would restore the fortunes of those people. Now, this was a powerful story. At its best, it was a story of God's unmerited grace breaking into the world in order to bring God's redemption and freedom to the whole of creation. That's at its best. But at its worst, it was a story of narrow privilege, of one people being the apple of God's eye and a story of, resist of the resistance of them against the rest of the world. And any idea of privilege and entitlement always undermines human relationships and human justice. But the problem most of the time is that the person with privilege fails to realize it. This event and other events gradually broke down the narrative of privilege with which the first Christians lived. Yet it was so difficult to break out of it. It's barely acknowledged even in the telling of this story. And indeed it still exists, even in that word, even. 
Now I have to recognize that I have grown up not so much with a narrative of privilege, but with an unspoken assumption of privilege in my life. And because it's unspoken, it's even more dangerous. You see, I am white, you might have noticed that. I am male, I am heterosexual, I'm married, I'm educated, and I hold a professional position. And all of that gives me enormous privilege in this world. I've never had to justify my right to be in a room or to sit round a table, neither because of my gender nor because of the colour of my skin. It's been assumed that it's okay I belong there. I've never had someone tweeting, not even an international rugby player, that because of my sexuality, I am destined for hell. I have never been questioned by the police because the colour of my skin brings me onto their radar. But of course, that so easily blinds me to the experience of so many others in the world who do not live with the same kind of privileges. And I can so easily end up colluding with all of the forces that sustain the privilege that I enjoy. It is the bastion of privilege that so often prevents the social barriers being broken down that are part and parcel of God's work in our world, breaking down those barriers. And we need to learn to recognise, name and challenge privilege wherever and whenever it is encountered, especially in our own lives. At the beginning of this sermon, I raised the question of climate change and why it is that we fail to respond with the urgency that is needed. I think at the heart of this, there is an issue of privilege. Not just the privilege of one human being over another, although that is part of the story, because climate justice is integrally related to social justice. But I think there is something even more fundamental than this. We have to grapple with that sense of privilege that we believe that we have as human beings over the rest of creation. Our sense of privilege as a species has led us to where we are today, threatening the delicate balance that holds this world in its glorious ecological diversity. We have to learn to see ourselves as part of this creation in a new way. And we need, I think, to begin to bring the language of community into our relationship with the created order in the same way that we bring the language of community into our relationships one with another, so that we're not just building community across the barriers between people, but we're learning what it means to live in community with the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom that we need to learn what it means to live in community with the whole of creation, with a humility rather than with a privilege. And that's a new way of thinking for us as human beings, breaking down that sense of privilege. God is the one who is constantly working in Jesus and by his spirit to break down barriers between us. He was the one who was at work in Peter, 
breaking down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, but breaking down those barriers within Peter himself, those barriers of purity and privilege that needed to be broken down within his life in order that the barriers could be broken down with, with others. We need to allow the Spirit of God to be at work with us in that same spirit of breaking down barriers and allowing those barriers within us that present, prevent that work from taking place to be broken down, whether they be barriers or purity or privilege or whatever else they may be, in order that God's kingdom may come and God's will may be done. We join in our prayers of intercession. God, our creator, whose hands in playful labour forged the world, and all the suns, moon and stars of space, you hold everything in being and continue to work moment by moment. And you call us to creativity, that we might share in making and remaking. As we place ourselves in your hands, make us true stewards, caretakers, <coughs> justice makers, that what we often might enrich the life of the world and speak of your glory. God, our liberator, who with a strong hand led the people of Israel out of slavery to freedom, through the hands of Jesus, your son, you healed the sick, releasing them from bondage. And through the piercing of his hands on the cross, you brought the world from death to life. Make us healers too. Healers of one another and healers of the earth. Take our hands into yours, that we may touch all creation with your love. And we pray for all who are working for healing and oneness within our world. Those who are at work in places where community is being destroyed, where the creation is being despoiled. God, our reconciler. Who in the person of your spirit beckons us into community, guides us into paths of peace and inspires our longing to become more Christ-like. Let your hand nudge us into the adventure of painting new visions, writing new worlds, building new structures and carving new landmarks to meet the challenges of our time. As you embrace us, may our hands embrace the world to find all our sisters and brothers, all living things, share the same pulse of God-given life. And help us with others to build strong bonds of community, not only between people, but between people and the created order in which we live. Shake us free of our sense of privilege and give us a sense of humility of living in this world, a sense of service, a sense of responsibility that we might live in community with the created order. 
We pray for all of those who are working in our world for this end. Those who are complaining. For justice for our creation. For action against climate change. For protection of our world order. Creator, liberator, reconciler. Into your hands we commit our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.